that's where the idea of open source software came in. What we thought was, what if we built an open source software payment hub or payment switching system that would allow either a bank or any other licensed financial institution to connect to a system that used this software for the purposes of credit push digital payment interoperability. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Conversations with Bacon. It's great to have you here. I hope you're all doing well. I hope you're all safe. Um, don't forget, of course, that my new book, People Powered, is out right now in all good bookshops and probably some pretty bad bookshops as well. So go and check out People Powered. But more importantly, let's get into uh, the discussion today. I'm absolutely thrilled to have on the podcast Miller Abel from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. How are you doing, Miller? I'm doing great, and thanks for having me today. Oh, it's uh, wonderful to, to have you on here. So let me go through the rap sheet and then we'll get into this. So um, you've spent, um, your career is, is, is a long and storied one and you spent a bunch of time as a software engineer and a software architect. Um, you were at Real Share Inc. and International uh, Medical Systems. You went on to be VP of Software Research and a co-founder at Nova Computer Systems in Honolulu, which I'm incredibly envious of. Um, and then you went on to, to Versus as a VP of Software Engineering and co-founder. And then I was thrilled when I was looking through your history to see that you worked at, at Borland. I didn't know that. And that's how <laughs> I kind of got interested in technology was using Turbo C++, in fact. Um, and then um, you went on to to uh, be a, I thought what was really interesting was when you went on to be a principal founding contributor at Microsoft, uh, focusing on on a a new top-level internet name domain from scratch. Um, then you became a, a board director at the NFC Forum when that was formed. And then you've been at Microsoft for quite some time. And today, you are the deputy director and principal technologist for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So it's a, it's a pretty interesting history. Now, I first met you through the Mojaloop project. Um, and I did a bit of work with, with, with um, Virtual and the Gates Foundation on this. Mm. Why do you give us a bit of an overview of what of what the problem is you're looking to solve, because this is all about financial uh, inclusion, right? So why don't you tell us about the problem that exists in the world that many of our listeners probably don't know about? Sure, yeah, I'd be happy to. And first off, thanks a lot for having me on today. You know, one of the things that we're doing now in the establishment of the Mojaloop Foundation is to reach out to the community of folks that are interested in the mission that we're trying to pursue here and get more really get more focus and more community built up around this. Um, as I understand it now, we have uh, about 600 or so people following us on email and uh, Gitter and on GitHub and so forth. But what are, they, what are they following us? What are we doing? Let me talk about that a little bit. Uh, first thing is to understand what we mean when we talk about financial inclusion. You know, it's, a, it's kind of a, a foreign concept for a lot of us that <clears throat> you would have difficulty thinking about how to pay for things. Uh, obviously, there's a, a, there's a history where, which we all go through. Uh, uh, as we're young, we pay for things with cash because that's what we have when we have it uh, from our paper routes or <laughs> uh, mowing lawns as it was when I was young or washing cars. Uh, but, you know, when you get out of a cash economy, uh, as you get older, you start paying with checks and other forms and other instruments such as credit cards and debit cards. Those things are really electronic and, and, and we think of them as digital payments forms. Mm. 
digital payment forms are they can be quite transformative in that they allow for remote commerce to take place and we've all experienced of course e-commerce on the web now if you translate that to a developing economy uh, people that are either pastoralists or uh, smallholder farmers and are subsistence uh, uh, folks that are living on subsistence uh, their experience of payments is generally through cash uh, and yet they still have the same issues of having to make remote payments the problem is a remote payment takes the form of either having to take the money somewhere and pay someone like by getting on a bus or a motorcycle and, and going you know 20 kilometers to another location uh, of course taking time off work to go do that to pay your your bill if you have to pay a utility bill right yeah or if you make need to make a remittance uh you'll go to what's called a bus station which is essentially a big dirt area with a bunch of buses that all back into a circle uh, and you walk up and find a bus driver who you tr- trust and or recognize, hopefully both. Right. Uh, and you hand him a wad of bills and say, could you take these to Uncle Joe in uh, across the border in Uganda? And, you know, the hope is that all of that money arrives to Uncle Joe. Uh, that seems like a, a risky proposition at best. <laughs> and yet, when you think about it, what's your alternative? Uh, you know, you, yes, you're you an option. The, right? right. You can do the 200 mile, 300 mile journey yourself. Uh, but that's yeah. not practical most times. And if it has to happen frequently, which it often does, uh, you know, that's, that's a difficult thing. And so what we're saying is how can we get people that are really experiencing uh, a cash economy into at least a balance of cash and digital and hopefully in the future onto a nearly purely digital economy, it's what, which is what we most now experience you know, in the developed world, you know, and so if we said to somebody who's living a lifestyle like that, primarily with cash, uh, I have a new payment instrument for you. It's, it's very cool. All you have to do is take a sheet of paper here, write the person you want to pay's name on it, fill in the amount that you want to pay, and then sign your name down here on the line and then hand it to them. And they'll take it to the bank and the bank will pull money out of your account. It might take a few days. We're not sure exactly when that'll happen. Uh, if they're if they're a bad person, they might uh, modify the amounts on that check and take more than they're allowed. Uh, but unfortunately, there's also a bunch of information printed on that piece of paper, which we call the check, that is uh, a, a pretty substantial disclosure risk. Uh, your full account number is there, your full legal name, often your address. And so you're going to present this to them, and the payment ceremony is going to translate something like they're going to tell somebody to where they keep their wallet, to please take a thousand shillings out of that wallet when they get around to it. Please only take a thousand and please don't tell anyone else where I keep my wallet. That's a pretty laugh, kind of a pretty laughable proposition. Right? Right. So, uh, so, so what we did, we reflected on this and said, if we're going to move people into a digital economy, then it has to largely meet them where they are, which is where they are on trust, where they are or lack of it where they are on the use of their time and resources uh, and their inability to, tr- to, to go to different places. That includes, by the way, opening an account, uh, you know, going to a bank in a big city and bringing all the right documents, if you know what those are, uh, and then trying to open an account uh, compared to, say, using a, a mobile phone uh, to open an account directly from the mobile phone, wherever you happen to be. Uh, so it's meeting people where they are was the first step. The second was... In looking at the time that this this uh, project got going uh, at the Gates Foundation the, around financial inclusion, they started looking at what were the actual evidence sitting underneath the 
we'll call them the levers that could be pulled to cause change to occur. And what some of the evidence was is that access to a transaction account uh, was was really a, a causative uh, driver to to lift people out of poverty. And, and, and the result of a study, a long-term study that we did, uh, was published back in, I believe it was 2017, uh, by uh, uh, Billy Jack and, and John Suri, uh, I believe it was in Science Magazine, that, that showed that 194,000 people rose out of poverty through their use of mobile money. Interesting. Uh, in this case, of course, uh, in Kenya, that would be on M-Pesa. So that's a very, very important platform. It's recognizing all of these things. And this impacts, and if I remember correctly, this um, significantly impacts women, right? It does. And if that's, I'm glad you brought that up because that's a very important part. You know, we, we've discovered through a number of programs that uh, when you empower women and you give them access to their own money, it changes everything. It changes family dynamics, social dynamics within the community. It's empowering. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, but not just empowering to women, which is by itself important enough to do the work, but it's, it's empowering to families, uh, and to, the, and to communities of families. But, you know, one of the things that we found in this journey was to say, if we, if we decomposed cash and said, what would a digital version of cash look like? Uh, well, it, it, you know, it won't, it wouldn't look like Bitcoin and I'll indicate why in, in a minute. But it would have many of the same properties that you might you might have thought of that way. Uh, I, I would be able to have money leave my account only when I authorize it to do so. Uh, I would be able to make a payment to anybody. They would be able to receive those funds from me in real time as I make that payment in real time. And they would be able to turn around and spend that money as soon as they received it. If I translate that into bank speak, that means that we would trans we, we, we would we would do a credit push transfer from my account to somebody else's account, the beneficiary's account. That transfer would clear at par in real time. And the facilitators, that is the two account holding institutions that, that control us, would interchange information between themselves. That is, they would be interoperable. And the value that they exchange, since they're facilitating this payment between them, it would settle by the end of the value day which means that there would be no outstanding net obligation between the participants beyond the end of the day. So the system becomes safe, right? It becomes relatively safe when you think about the potential for a small institution to go out of business and that would expose the bank to losses. Uh, And so you you want those bundle of things together. Well, as we started looking through those, we developed what we call the level one project, which was a this evidence-based approach to thinking about financial inclusion. And we started calling this collection of evidence and uh, guidance, the level one project principles. Right. We started to talk about those with uh, national uh, level actors, state actors and NGOs that were involved also in financial inclusion. And it started to resonate. And as it did, uh, there was a lot of persuasion, um, with existing bankers that this would be a good idea because it's very different from what they're thinking of. But once they got it, they really got it and they wanted to do something with it. Right. But the question would quickly become, uh, that seems complicated to build. Uh, it seems like it could be expensive to build and we actually have no idea how to begin. So how could we, how can you help us with those questions? And, that's where the idea of open source software came in. What we thought 
was what if we built an open source software payment hub or payment switching system that would allow either a bank or any other licensed financial institution to connect to a system that used this software for the purposes of credit push payment interoperability, digital payment interoperability between those institutions, which might be very different kinds of institutions. Uh, And so that's back in 2016 when we put the project together with a group of five companies. And we moved those companies through this process of developing what we'll call a reference architecture. Yeah. And we, we showed people that we had been speaking to the level one project about this software. And they said, gosh, that's, that's cool. Can I just implement that? Well, right. that wasn't really the original intention. It was supposed to be like, <laughs> a kind of a reference architecture. It's not, you know, like a glorified demo, right? So we got to a little further on in the project. We said, well, why don't we, why don't we push this to a point where it actually could be theoretically deployed, although it's not complete, it's not a product, but it could theoretically be deployed at the core of a system. And we got to something that was pretty plausible. It ran at, uh, I don't know, moderate moderate rates and small volumes in AWS. Uh, and we released that uh, as open source software in 2017 under the rubric Mojaloop, which is a Swahili word meaning one, uh, basically one combined with loop, one loop. Uh, the idea being to create one right, uh, closed loop system, sorry, one open loop system that, that you can connect all of the, the banks together. Uh, into one. So we released that at Cybos. Um, and from that point on, we got a lot of, uh, of interest. And the project kind of evolved a bit from there. Now, one, one thing that I find interesting about that, if I understood you correctly, Miller, was when you did some of this early research and you, 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 you had these level one principles and you went and spoke to the, the organizations that this would imp- impact, it sounds like that was a very positive uh, set of discussions and i would have imagined and maybe this is just the british cynic in me that going and presenting something so different and some so new would just get immediate pushback um it, it, can you elaborate a little bit on kind of their initial reaction to this because it sounds like it was it was more positive than i would have anticipated well it was more positive i think primarily because it wasn't us pitching them something or telling them something we really actually it was a set of questions now, this was an exploration that we undertook with them because they understand they have an issue. And certainly some of the countries we spoke to already have national financial inclusion frameworks. that are uh, It's a legislative framework that a country puts in place to guide succeeding administrations down a path towards further inclusion of their citizens into their finance system. And so you know, we would look at those and say, that's those goals are pretty well aligned with the kinds of things we'd like to see and, you know, so that's pretty advanced thinking already. And that, that really means that there's a, there's a receptivity there. Uh, you know, by, com- by comparison, were we to have sold the idea of credit push payments to, uh, you know, the U.S. banking system in 2013 or 2014, uh, we would have got the result you predicted. <laughs> well, and it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's really smart because I it's it's kind of it provides an opportunity for them to be part of the solution, right? That they, you can have a a shared conversation about what what the challenge is that we want to solve, and then at least when you start presenting that uh, or start building out that early proof of concept, it's going to be a much more collaborative process. Um, what one thing I, I'd l- I'd like to understand is, um, 
many people who are listening to this will be familiar with the with the with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the amazing work that the foundation does. Um, why this topic? Like, why did this become something that the foundation wanted to look into in terms of financial inclusion? Because there are many challenges in the world. Why this one? Well, we organized the Gates Foundation. Uh, it's it's organized into what we call strategies. You could think of them. Well, if we were a commercial company, they'd be looked at, at project teams or product teams, that kind of thing. Right. But we don't produce and we don't deliver. So uh, we think of them as strategies. And there are about 29 or 30 of them at this point. Uh, financial services for the poor is one of those strategies. Within the financial services for the poor team, uh, our goal is looking at the uh, providing the uh, access to finance to people that don't have access to it, uh, not simply payments, but many other things as well. And what we've recognized is that by doing that, I mentioned the, the study by Jack and Surrey, yeah. uh, it concluded that access to a simple transaction account was a causative driver out of poverty. And we, that's one half of the problem, get people out of poverty. The second yeah. is to have them not fall back in as the result of financial insults such as a health, a death, or, uh, you know, a climate crisis. <clears throat> and so it's not just us. We work, of course, with our fellows in the agricultural development team, water sanitation and health team, maternal uh, newborn child health team. These different teams work together along a common thing, which is to impact the lives of, the, uh, of those that are excluded from some of the benefits that we enjoy in the developed world. Uh, but it's all in service of that mission that uh, the Bill and Melinda put together when they when they put this foundation together, which was to recognize that all lives have equal value, and that you know for for, for that to be uh, expressed through the work that we do, we have to look at those cases where there are inequities, uh, whether those inequities are driven by cultural practice or by uh, the simple aspects of the way people live. Uh, you know, it is a separate matter. So what could we do was the question. Well, within financial services for the poor, we've divided the work up into several different uh, initiatives, as we call them. You know, we'll look at, a, at data. I've got to start with data. Everything we do is driven by data and evidence. And so we do a lot of work there. Also, it's with partners. So partners such as the World Bank, SeaGap, uh, uh, the consultative group to, uh, to advocate for the poor, uh, which is an arm of the World Bank, uh, and other partners that we work with uh, to collaborate in this space. It, you know, none of us can do this work alone. Uh, it's too hard. Uh, we also have the, our initiative, too, which is the, the group that I'm working with that uh, develops the uh, payments infrastructure. We then have a group that looks at usage of digital financial services and how can that improve people's lives, things like cashing and cash out, micro-saving, uh, savings groups, uh, different ways in which they could use it. Things beyond payments uh, we're looking for. Um, yep. and, and then our, our fourth group is one that looks at actual in-country strategy. It's a bit of a pivot if you think of it. Uh, here are the things that we do in these three buckets, and then here are the places in which we do them. Uh, right. And we focus primarily on eight countries, uh, you know, foreign Africa and foreign Asia, that uh, uh, take a, a direct uh, you know, programmatic work that we do 
And then there are region, three or four regions that we work through where it's at a higher level, where we're not so much on the ground working with individuals uh, in countries so much as we're working through regional bodies. Uh, and then, of course, we, we like to look a little bit more broadly, uh, you know, if we can, where there's things that generalize well to, to other markets. So it's, a, it's, I mean, it is a really comprehensive view, which I think is, which is impressive. Um, just give us a sense, again, for people who are listening to this, who probably, I don't think anyone listening to this is going to deny that this is an important problem to solve. But I think people might not realize the, just the sheer um, impact that this will have. When you think of the people who, who will benefit from this work, can you get, paint us a picture of how many of those people are out there? Where do they live? Like what countries are we talking about? How many people are in those countries? What kind of demographics are we looking at? Yeah, so we have uh, still 1.7 billion people living on less than $2 a day. Uh, that's the, if you want to find the bottom of the pyramid, that's it. And you'll notice that it's not very thin. It's not a thin <laughs> slice of the pyramid. Uh, so but, but so what, what does it mean, though? I mean, you could take a pretty selfish view and say, uh, there's a lot of way to create value in the world, and it'll trickle down, and everybody will benefit over time. We, we don't, by the way, we don't actually believe that. Uh, yes. Yeah. We have to work directly uh, where people are on the problems that they have uh, with empathy uh, and not try to show up and say, we have all the answers. Uh, let's help your hotels get, get up to speed with credit cards, and then uh, you know, eventually the poor people will benefit from that because we can't find any articulable link uh, between those things. But if we actually did solve for this and we brought those people in, uh, the, the potential rise in GDP is something like $3.7 trillion. Wow. Uh, that would be added to the world economy by bringing those people into the economy. Uh, and, you know, when you think about the size of the transactions that are taking place at that level, uh, it, you know, it's hard to get excited about it as a banker. Uh, right. But if you think about the aggregate value, you know, what was the joke at one point that said a billion here, a billion there, eventually it's real money. Uh, <laughs> right. You know, and I think that really comes true here, uh, that those people represent, if you think of it another way, that value is still being created. They're living their lives, but it's not, you can't capture it. You can't. It doesn't accrete to the value of an economy outside of the cash economy. Um, that is the financial uh, side of the, the economy. So how do you pull the people in so that that becomes a normalized part, normalized finance instead of informal finance? Mm. That was the real question, I think, that, that the, uh, the team looked at. Yeah, it's fascinating. And what I think is really impressive about this story, um, <clears throat> I think there are many... People out there, many organizations out there who want to have a positive impact. They want to make a change in the world. And I know that the, the philanthropic world is filled with well-meaning foundations who will do fundraising and then they'll, they'll have various initiatives that are going on. But what I think is so powerful about this from what I've seen is that you started with building, like, well, not necessarily started, but really focused on building practical software. Um, you know, that there was, there was an investment in building out the proof of concept. There's been an investment in building out Mojo Loop into, into the project it is today. And, um, so there's real runnable code. It's not just a vision. It's not just a glossy website. There's real runnable code. Was that always the plan with this? Because it's kind of non-intuitive, I think, for many philanthropic organizations to start building something such as that. 
and then kind of get it onto its own two feet so it can so it can survive by itself without necessarily that funding stream was that always the plan or did it kind of just evolve into that plan as you're as you approach the solution for this no that that is that was actually the crazy plan as crazy as it sounds uh, right that uh, so uh, Costa Peric, who runs their our initiative to within financial services for the poor uh, uh, I guess if I think back now he interviewed me in gosh it would have been 2015 I think something like that uh, right kind of laid this idea out. It's like, we need to show people what these principles mean. How does this work? We've got a prototype where they had actually prototyped an entire economy with phones and, and all the bits so that you could see it all basically running on a box. That What would all the parts look like when they communicate together? Well, what would it look like to model the switching parts of this stack in a way that people could try it out, right? Poke on it and... Uh, understand what this would mean. And, you know, the more we talked about it, the more we thought there might be an opportunity to turn this thing into a real open source project that would be contributed to by people in the countries that we were looking to benefit from this. Uh, Essentially, people helping themselves, uh, and we wanted to provide an acceleration for that. So can we put something in place that would sort of be the guiding you know, what would be the guiding uh, implementation? I mentioned, I called it a reference architecture before. The intention being, if you show people enough about how to do it, uh, then they could build something like that. In fact, we expected at the time that it would likely be big commercial companies would recognize the value, uh, do their own thing, uh, but that uh, we could sort of test the outputs of that commercial work against the principles by using the reference architecture. Yeah, uh, to say it should kind of look like that. You don't have to build it this way, but it should kind of look like that. Look, nobody, nobody showed up to build it, and right. so we thought, well, this we could we could build it. Uh, and so in uh, June of 2016, actually it was May of 2016. If I think about it, basically almost exactly four years ago, uh, we put five companies together to develop this, and the companies that are foreign to this concept. So we have the software group Bulgaria, which is actually uh, a, a company that has offices in Bulgaria and uh, headquartered in Nairobi uh, that is f- very familiar with the financial inclusion mission. Uh, they, they develop software and consult in that, in that area have for, for some time. And they had been partners of the Gates Foundation before. Uh, we included Ripple uh, if we're in a very particular way, which I'll explain in a minute. Uh, they're a cryptocurrency company that's uh, primarily focused on uh, you know, cross-border trades. Yep. Uh, and a company called Tuala, which is a U.S. Midwest U.S.-based company that started off uh, building pretty much this kind of capability for the U.S. That is the ability to do uh, credit push payments between banks that uh, it could then be used for any purpose, whether it was for commerce or for person-to-person payments or whatever. But it's a utility model they call FISync. And it was, uh, yeah, we thought that's kind of what we want. It was something like that. We need a ledger and need some other bits to put together and wrap around that. So let's get them. You know, it's kind of like the opening scene of Mission Impossible, right? You throw the dossier down, the guy in there. <laughs> uh, uh, so Tawala was there, and then uh, we needed a systems integrator uh, and some uh, a small company named Modus Box that happened to be in Seattle. Um, it was also a MuleSoft uh, 
supplier and we have mm. used the Millsoft platform originally in pulling the system together quickly. Um, and we have not migrated away from that uh, since then. But Motusbox is still very much involved. Uh, and then we need somebody who could run bird on this whole thing because you've got now five companies, some of which are kind of competing with each other, but certainly don't care about each other very much otherwise. Uh, <laughs> how can we get them all together in uh, collaborating on building software? Uh, now, they're all agile. They're all cloud, more or less cloud-based, but they all have their own ideas about how things should work. And so we hired a company called Crosslake Technologies, who is still the technical director for the Motion Loop Foundation today, uh, to run a safe agile program. Safe is the scale of agile framework for engineering. It's a way of saying, you got a bunch of companies, each one runs an agile process. They're kind of more or less the same, uh, but they're not the same. And what you don't want to do is tell a company they're doing it wrong and they should use your version of agile. Right. That'll come to blows, right? So basically you agree on what your sprint cycle is going to be and then you let the companies run their own process. And then at the end of the sprint, you integrate and you run then an agile program around that. So we run programming increments that run... uh, uh, it, it, it used to be eight to ten weeks. It's now more like pretty much all of ten weeks, uh, right? And those program increments, then of course, at the end of that, you deliver real software, right? That, that's been collaborated on by, in our case, back then it would have been five companies. Now it's a lot more than that, and we've got like I don't know what the number is thirty-five to forty uh, companies. I think that are actively contributing to the software, and a bunch of individuals uh, that are also working in there. Fantastic. And when you were thinking about, again, the recipients of this, when you think about these these nations and how the, how this technology is going to be deployed, <clears throat> I know that the, the notion and the concept of open source can mean very different things to very different people. There are parts, large parts of the technology world that are still kind of new to open source and a little nervous about it. And there are kind of antiquated views when it comes to security and privacy and things such as that. Did you ever feel like this could be a problem? I mean, it seems like a logical collaboration model for people to work together like you just demonstrated, Miller. But were you worried at all that the fact that it's open source could be a problem in terms of actually getting it out there into the hands of of regular people? Well, for a few milliseconds. I mean, you have to at least ask the question to yourself, like, is this something that... Well, so we asked a few banks, and they have no problem with it. In fact, they're largely embracing open source for the... The total cost of ownership benefits that flow from using it. Uh, that doesn't mean they're not using commercial systems anymore. They are. A lot of them are. And, and most of the banks that use commercial systems are using systems that uh, include open source in them. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I would have said that, you know, if, if find a banker that, uh, you know, doesn't like open source and ask him what kind of phone he's carrying. And if it's not an iPhone, you might want to ask him to rethink his position. Uh, <laughs> right. You know, Android. It'll be big someday. So I think um, if you if you think about how open source works and why is the total cost of ownership lower, you get to what you get the aha moment. Why this makes so much sense in this space? Mm. These are very expensive systems to build. They're going to largely be bespoke systems uh, for a national level payment uh, you know, infrastructure. Even if you had something that was you know a perfect fit to the level one project principles, we have to remember that. Uh, a, a, a government's going to implement their principles. Now they might be they might be inspired by the level one project principles, but it's going to be their principles, and so they need to be able to adapt the system to a set of scheme rules, as we would call them, that they've written. 
Uh, and those rules are then going to guide the next layer in this four-rung ladder that we like to talk about. Uh, the, the next rung above those rules would be the rails. That's where the software lands. And those rails are going to have to connect to the next rung of the ladder, which is all of the account providers. And each country has its own rules for who can be a licensed payment service provider. You know, banks generally. Uh, but there are other kinds. Mobile money is another form. FinTechs, various forms, microfinance, informals like tacos, savings groups. So they're going to have to write rules that will support rails that can connect to all those variety of different account types. But where the real unlock happens is the next layer above that, which is apps. Uh, you know, we could, we could have 10,000 apps that were being serviced by dozens of financial institutions or hundreds of financial institutions all connected to a common set of rails driven by a common set of scheme rules. I mean, that would be the sort of exponential fan, if you will, that we'd like to see form. Yeah, um, for sure. So that's a complex system. Now, if you tried to build that uh, without borrowing software that was already written by others in some form, that would be a pretty big challenge. And so, Yeah, that's just too big of a rock to push up that hill, right? <laughs> it, it, it pretty so. much is. And so, but that's one part. The second part, though, is let's say you're going to build now a, uh, a back-end reporting engine of some kind. And then you're going to write a bunch of reports for your system. You know, you need to do interchange reports and, and generate bills and audit reports and things that they're going to be pretty specific to your use of in your own payment system. You know, let's say you're at the National Bank of Inclusion and you're going to deploy a system based on, on, on Mojaloop. Uh, so you need to write some of this software on your own, but you, but you're going to build an engine to do reporting. When you're done writing that engine, it's going to connect into the Mojaloop core watch the transaction flows, allow you to perform some transformation on them and produce PDF reports. Okay, that's cool. So when you're all done writing it, you have to, of course, now integrate it with MojoLoop, and you're going to keep doing that as new versions of MojoLoop come out. Well, uh, that's a thing you've got to do now. Now you're going to have to maintain that engine, and every time MojoLoop's uh, data flows change, you're going to have to adapt your reporting engine to those new flows. Or mm. you could take your reporting engine and you could contribute it back into Mojaloo. And if it's agreed that the community feels there is common value in that, the community takes it and the community will make sure that when we release a new version of Mojaloo, it has a working reporting engine that's already been incorporated and been tested correct. So now, now I don't have to pay, now I don't have a maintenance cost for that. So, so I wrote the software, that reporting engine piece of software, and that cost me money. Right. Uh, to do that, but I don't have to maintain it anymore. It's not part of the system. It's being maintained by me and everyone else. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And if I choose to evolve it, I can, you know, tap it on the edge and make some change to it. And that change then gets uh, incorporated. So if I'm one of 12 contributors, uh, I got the free software developed by 11 contributors when I joined and I contribute something back. I paid the full freight for developing that thing that I contributed in. Uh, but, but if you think of it, it's now spread across the contributions of eleven other companies. Right. Every, yeah. Exactly. Everybody benefits by 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 feeding into the ecosystem, and, and it strikes me that w one of the most interesting elements of this to me is 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 you meant you touched on people building client side applications that will talk to this overall framework. Um, that's going to be really exciting in my mind, and we've seen the impact of that just on the web and the fact that you know this this culture of open APIs and it allows mm. people to innovate in lots and lots of different areas the way you would never be able to anticipate. 
And it strikes me that that's going to be kind of in just a new area of technology when applied to to these nations and 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 what Mojo Loop is there to serve. Right? Is about how do you go about? What do you think? What's your thinking, Miller, when it comes to encouraging? I'm guessing going to be very regional little businesses and organizations and other people to create those client side integrations that will talk to this this new platform, this new infrastructure. Well, well, the first thing that I would say is you're right about the APIs, that that's an important part. Uh, we wouldn't necessarily jump to the point that they all have to be standardized. In some cases, it's access to the platform below you in that four-run stack that matters most. And so we would have said, the top two rungs of that ladder, the apps, which are going to be integrated into the account providing systems, those are in what we'll call competition space. You know, the accounts all com- the account providers all compete with each other for customers. It's their job to onboard those customers and to maintain them with sufficient value that the customers don't switch. Uh, the app providers are going to pick somebody who does a really good wholesale payments job. You know, an Uber is going to go pick somebody that they want their merchant account with. They might pick more than one. Uh, for safety, uh, and they're going to onboard to one or more of those account providers, but not all of them. They don't have to do that anymore because underneath the account providers is are the rails that all of those account providers are connected to, uh, and the, the rails and the rules would be sitting in cooperation space. And so we would have said that the yep. interface between an app provider and the account provider, it's really between them. An account provider can decide how aggressively they want to go after the app market by creating really cool rate, you know, APIs that they can offer in. Now, the GSMA is offering out a standardized uh, API that they're evolving for common payments cases and use cases. Mm. That uh, it's, it's got some traction uh, with mobile money providers. Uh, the banks have a thing called the Open API, Open Banking API, which is progressing in Europe and, and is finding attraction in other markets, but it requires regulatory support you know, in the yep. market to allow a bank team and participate with some of the data flows that are required there. Um, yeah. But, but then when you get down a level and say, but what about the banks and the mobile money operators connecting into the switch itself? We need an API for that. And back again in 2016, we, we recognized that the first step in getting these providers onto a common platform was that they had to speak a common API. Otherwise, mm. we were, it was going to be, it was going to be chasing cats. So, yeah, it's going to be Thunderdome at that point. Yeah, you know, so we we assembled a a, a group of uh, the the largest uh, wallet platform providers, uh, Ericsson, Huawei, Mahindra, Viva, and Telepin. And between the four of them, I think they had several hundred million wallets uh, deployed on, on uh, by by their by the operating companies that use their platforms. Right, and so they collaborated together over uh, simultaneously with us developing the initial motion with reference architecture uh, to develop what we call the Open DFS API specification. Mm. That's a mouthful of acronyms, but it's it's an open <laughs> specification. It's in fact Open API. Uh, you know, it's a, a standardized schema for APIs. Used to be called YAML. It's now called Open API. Right, uh, and it's a, for digital financial services, and it's for interoperability of digital financial services platforms. So, Open DFS API specification, right? And that specifies a set of about thirteen or so use cases that a 
uh, digital financial service provider utilizing some platform of some kind uh, would want to execute in an interoperable form with another platform that's been implemented in some other way. Uh, oh, I see. Right. It can be done. You could think of it as mapping bilaterally between them. That is uh, a sender side and the receiver side. Uh, the sender side wants to send a credit message to the receiver side where it will be credited the beneficiary. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Right. And then, you know, there's a bunch of them. There's cash in, cash out, uh, over the counter, uh, wallet to ATM, um, uh, bank to wallet, wallet to bank, person to right. person. And, the, and, and an interesting one we call merchant request to pay. You know, a lot of the, the institutions that we've talked to, uh, you know, are, are very, you know, their thinking is very card centric because the largest digital payment platform on the planet is card driven. And right. so a lot of the language and lingo and development in their economy and the markets, uh, albeit not at the low level because the, the bottom of the pyramid doesn't use cards, but still that, you know, it all, it all, a lot of value flows through card based systems. And so it's developed a pattern of thinking. One of those is right. that a merchant can control a transaction, right? When you go to buy coffee, you don't suggest to the barista how much it ought to cost. They tell you yeah. exactly what it's going to cost. They calculate the tax. And yep. the transaction, the payment ceremony is largely you agreeing to their terms <laughs> and uh, applying them with appropriate money in some form. And so if you're in a credit push world, let's say I'm on a PayPal uh, account on my smartphone and I want a credit push from my PayPal account to your PayPal account. Uh, noticing first that's not interoperable. We're on the same platform, but it's the same scenario, right? So uh, I'm going to decide how much to spend and who to spend, who to send it to. And then I'm going to initiate that message and it, you will get a notification that money has arrived and then you take over from there and deposit it. Well, that's not the same as the way merchant works, right? You, 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 otherwise, it would be very weird. The merchant would say, <laughs> gosh, it would be awesome if you sent me $5.35 right now U.S. and I'll just stand here and wait for you to pack that out on your phone. Uh, you know, that's not going to work. So what we want a merchant request to pay, right, is to say, the merchant can set up the whole transaction, maybe even using a smartphone app for point of sale. Uh, and remember, tr try to translate this whole thing now, go down into a uh, uh, a dirt yard uh, mercado. Uh, you know, not don't 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 think of the barista in Starbucks so much anymore. Think about a vegetable vendor on the side of the road, or and you you've selected three or four things. They're going to do the math for you, and they're going to send you the uh, post haggling price. Uh, that, that, that has to be paid. Now, they would like to submit that through their phone to your phone so that you can see everything in advance. And one of the project, one of our level one project principles is that a spender of money knows exactly how much they're going to spend, including fees, before they release payment. So there are no surprises. So, that, so this is a way of really reinforcing that. It's to say, I got this sort of real, call it a real time invoice. And I'm standing right there, and suddenly it pops up on my phone by SMS or uh, you know through a, a uh, through another channel, and I can I can see exactly what's being requested from whom, what their legal name is, and uh, be reasonably assured that this is going to close the transaction. When I when I execute that, it's still credit push. That is, they're not going to pull money out of my account. I still have to authorize that with my own bank account provider. Uh, transaction account provider who will then push the credit towards the merchant. So it's, it has the same mechanical and financial function that a peer-to-peer -peer credit push payment would. 
but it was essentially controlled by the merchant. So they get what they need to run their business effectively. And the end users get the protection that they need, which is to know money doesn't leave their account unless they authorize it real time. Right, right, right. Now, as you've been, as Miller, as you've been going through this process, um, you know, just to recap some of this, so some initial research was done, some principles were defined. Uh, you put together a, a set of companies who've been working together and building out the software, um, and. You know, I flew out to one of the convenings and it was it was really inspiring seeing just the amount of collaboration that was occurring there. And there was a very positive level of energy and 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 work that was going on and very, very practical in nature. What has this been like from the perspective of someone inside of the Gates Foundation? Was this something that that was pretty normal that you'd done this with previous projects before, or was this kind of new for the Gates Foundation? How what's been the experience from your perspective in 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 helping to facilitate and make make this happen? Well, well, the Gates Foundation doesn't do this very often. I, I, I would hesitate to say that I have enough understanding of their 20-year history to say they've never done it before, but there, there weren't a lot of examples we could look at. So I didn't draw so much on that as when I put this together as I did on my experience in working in these environments. Uh, I, I spent some time at the NFC Forum uh, as one of the uh, founding board members there and developing contactless uh, data exchange protocols and that's a, it's an open standards environment, not open software. Uh, right. But a lot of the same principles apply, which is you are in a situation where you have competing interests, uh, but a shared vision. We're all here for a reason. And some of the things we're going to do are going to be reserved for ourselves and other things are going to be collaborated on, right? And so I just talked about four on that ladder, right? The bottom runs yep. the ladder collaboration space. Well, the same thing is true in, in software and standards. Uh, there's a certain level of thing you just agree just has to be, we all have to all agree on it. You don't have to love it, but we have to agree on it. But we can't make progress. And so the uh, the principles of open source uh, have an extra bit, though, that you don't get out of standards, which is the goal is to produce running software, not just the specifications that could result in it if you were to write software. Yeah. Exactly, which is a very, very different set of work. And so there's a whole set of work around how do you do the work? How do you agree? What platforms do you use? What languages do you use? All the way down to the point of, you know, it's just excruciating tedium at some point to say, how many spaces are we going to use in the index (laughs) of the lines of our source code? Oh, and by the way, are we going to use spaces or are we going to use tabs? Oh, yeah, you right, know. just to, to complicate matters. <laughs> so, but, you know, we, we want us, we don't want to bike shed the whole thing, but that does turn into a, uh, you know, a, that's, that's a thing. You do have to get over yep. that. Once you've gotten over it, everybody just has to agree. Nobody has to love it. They don't have to change their own practices on their own projects, but when you work on ours, there's a reason why we all agree. It's so that we agree. It's not really for a higher reason than that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so the same thing is true for things like, well, what platform we're going to be on? There we there we take a more architectural approach. We say, what are we making, and how should we assemble it? And you know, we we thought about early on in the process that we really want a modern microservice architecture. We would like the resulting software to be runnable off premises or in the cloud. Meaning that if I want to just evaluate this, I'm just going to go spin up an environment, terraform it, AWS. I can have a look and see how the software runs. But if I'm going to deploy it at a national bank in uh, you know somewhere in East Africa, 
I'm probably going to be dealing with what we call payment sovereignty and data sovereignty, uh, which suggests that all personally identifiable information of citizens must remain in the country, on servers in the country, and that the control over the payment infrastructure has to reside within the country and not be dependent upon, uh, you know, not, not be, they have to be sanction proof. Uh, and so, you know, you don't want to, to run everything in the U.S. and, you know, you, you, you piss off the U.S. government and, and they tell you that, uh, that company can no longer provide you with services and your, your entire economy shuts down. Uh, that, that would be bad. So, uh, so I think there's a, you know, there's a set of structuring conventions around that, how you build the software that are applied to the environment in which you expect it to run, what you expect it to do, even before you've actually written anything, that you get locked in pretty early. So we, we decided early on that we were going to be, we would use Node.js, which was a reliable and high-performance microservice architecture uh, that will not do other things really well, but it does that well. Uh, it, uh, you know, it's not Java, uh, and it's not an enterprise uh, C++ program. Uh, we're not going to do that. Right. You know, we yep. we, we want to start with a platform that gives us a bunch of stuff for free to start off with. Uh, you know, we, we send messages through the system on a high-speed uh, queuing system called Kafka. So when a message arrives from a payer, it flows into a persistent queue, which means that we don't tell you we received your message until we persisted and it will never be lost. Uh, and we can process it, and if the system crashes, we can bring the system back up, and we still have your message. Nothing got lost. Uh, so nobody wants to try to figure out how to write that and get it right. Well, maybe people do because it would be fun, but it wouldn't right. be productive. <laughs> so let's not rewrite those things. <laughs> so we chose, we kind of cherry pick things like, you know, Node.js for, for the platform itself. It's, you know, large numbers of people know how to write JavaScript. We, we've incorporated TypeScript in some places to make the, uh, the uh, uh, language conventions a little bit tighter, a little more strict. Um, you know, and, and Node.js being microservice architecture gives us uh, a way to, to host a variety of things. Uh, we started off with uh, Postgres SQL as the ledger database, and we've since migrated to MySQL, but using, it's really MySQL per Kona. It's a, it's a form of distributed uh, uh, persistent database, right? So that you have the ability to ensure that one of your database servers crashes you have full redundant copies elsewhere that are still online and completely usable. Uh, mm, mm. Get business continuity. Anyway, by choosing these different things for their own reasons, and we can shift around a bit, uh, open source allowed us to draw on a vast community of work to that, that works within the node environment, that knows how to work with Kafka, that works with these other uh, components we chose. And I think at last count, we had something well over a thousand down modules uh, that we reference uh, through you know, you know through a a, uh, a tree of, of dependencies, right? So we'll write one line of code and require the use of a, a date-time converter, which will require the use of a number package, which requires the use of, you know, et cetera. So you end up with this tree of inbound references. Yep. And so one of the things we had to be careful of as we did this is that we had a set of principles around licensure. Like, what are we going to burden ourselves with if we're using other people's software? They have a right to tell us how it can be used, and we have a right not to use it. Uh, and so 
we chose up front that our Mojo Loop software would be licensed under the Apache 2.0, a, a commercially permissive license. And yes, yes. use the software for anything they want. Uh, uh, so we, you know, we joke about it, but you know, you could take Mojo Loop and go build a jet refueling billing system around it if you wanted to. Uh, well, that's not going to help the poor, and we're probably not going to take your commits. Well, unless they help the software, but you know, you don't need our permission to do that. You can just go do it. And you kind of needed to license it under that license, I would have imagined, just so potentially commercial um, client side uh, applications could talk to it because if it was GPL or something like Yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned that because that is fundamental to what we're doing. If, if the system uh, can't at any level cannot be profitable, that is, it has to be free vertically all the way out, then it's not sustainable. Right. I mean, somebody it's just not going to work, yeah. It. Right. Yeah. So what we want to do is make sure through that stack, we've said that the account providers make profit, the app providers make profit, but the rails uh, don't. The rails are a, a utility. It's like you and I experience roads as free. They're not free. <laughs> They're very much not free. But we, when nobody charges as a toll to roll out of our driveway, right? So we experience them as free. However, uh, those roads are paid through by two kinds of adjacencies, vertical adjacencies and horizontal adjacencies. Uh, and we look at the same thing here. The vertical adjacency on roads is that if you are on the same road I'm on, but you're a large lorry filled with goods, you're going to be paying a fee. You're going to pull over now and then and get weighed, and you're going to pay a tax based on the weight of your vehicle. That's you know a usage-based uh, vertical adjacency to the free layer that all of us experience. Uh, and then there's going to be horizontal adjacencies, which are essentially the value-added services that wrap around the roads. It's like uh, driving through Trafalgar Square in the afternoon. You're probably going to pay a fee for that, right? Your car doesn't block there. Uh, if you want to be there at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, it's going to cost you some money. Uh, and there are other things as well. Those people that uh, uh, wanted to make money off of, say, uh, payments might say everything under a thousand shillings is free. In fact, that, that is how it works in Kenya. A person can pay another person under a certain limit and it's free. Right. Once it gets above that limit, then they might start charging for it. But they also could say, yeah, and if you want to exchange money between Kenya and Uganda across a border, of course, there's a fee to exchange that currency. Uh, but that's a service that wraps around the payment part, which is actually paying for it itself is free. But the service mm. you is not free. Not unlike what we would experience with credit, right? You can right, uh, yeah, exactly. Deduct money from your check when you pay off the amount that you've already borrowed, but you are in fact <laughs> paying money for having borrowed in the first place. Uh, anyway, yeah. yeah. So, so I think we went through that process, right, of saying what are the right drivers of these choices, but then in the end, what are those choices? And I think we got to a pretty good balance, but you know, you you mentioned one thing already, which I think is worth reinforcing, which is. The community collaboration and contribution that we've developed, I just think, I, I think it's remarkable. Uh, yeah. I, you know, my, my, my job in this from the beginning remains the same, which is to uh, inculcate the mission, the work that the Motion Group Foundation does, and ensure that we could see a path from infrastructure out to the woman in the village who's selling vegetables or buying them, um, and that her life will be improved. Uh, if the system is deployed and accessible to her in a way yeah. that she can utilize it, that's simple to use, it's safe, it's secure, uh, and valuable to her. 
then, it, then the system will get used. And we have to, if we keep focused on that part, uh, you know, the fun bits of building software that fit around that, uh, and that's what I think we have. Uh, that that will uh, that that will happen. That well, that's what I love about it. And as and and as you've told the story, Miller, and people can, I'm sure will, people will agree with this. Is just how intentional you've been about everything. It's not just been, let's just go and try have a go at building something, from from the research and and the collaboration and and how you've designed and built the software. It's been very purposeful, which I think is really which is which is fabulous. The the final thing, just to bring this into a close. Um, Give us a, a quick update on where things are right now, and 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 what are the next? What's going to happen in the next six to twelve months in terms of getting it out there and getting it into the hands of people? Sure. Well, the, the first thing is that the most recent thing, the most exciting news is that we have created an independent charitable company to take over the hosting and evolution of the software. Really, it's the hosting right. community because the the charitable company itself. Uh, isn't going to write software. Its purpose is to and make sure the resources are available uh, to and from the companies that are contributing. So we have a set of sponsor members within that company that will ensure that it's well-funded enough that it can do those things. Uh, right. Pay for DevOps, pay for an AWS license you know, to run software in the cloud. And, but, but really, the work will still be done by the community itself. And so mm. it's building that community. But what we're most interested in is building the community within the environments in which it will be used. And we have a mm. lot of contributors from East Africa, South Africa, Asia. Uh, and those are the environments in which the software will actually get deployed. And at present, it's being deployed in two places. Uh, there's a collaboration between Orange Trust Telecom and MTN, MTN being a South African uh, mobile money provider uh, and telecom provider. Uh, they have collaborated together. They've implemented Motion Loop. It's hosted in Azure. Uh, and right. for the purposes of doing cross-border remittance uh, between uh, different African countries, and uh, they continue to work through the, the different paths that money can flow, both that are valuable economically and that they have regulatory support for and as they develop that up, their business will continue to grow. But it's a pan-African thinking. The second yep. one of these is uh, the uh, the national bank, the central bank of Tanzania, is building a, a real-time payment system themselves, and they chose to use Motion Loop as an ingredient in that system. Now, of course, they have had to still write their own scheme rules, uh, decide what they want to offer, and uh, but by using Motion Loop software at the core, they've got a lot of. The, the core of payment switching, clearing, and settling, uh, you know, built into their system from the beginning. And it will, of course, then be maintained by the rest of the community. We have other interested parties, too, in, in other places. And we're, we're very, uh, uh, we'd be very grateful if anybody is interested in using the software or evaluating it, uh, is to check in with us. You know, and we'd, be, we'd be happy to give you uh, guidance on how to get the software hosted uh, in a cloud where you can work with it. We have several labs, the GSMA, uh, which is the association of uh, GSM mobile operators, has hosted a innovation lab, which includes Mojo with its core, their open API, mm. and some other things that they've done. And there are other labs as well uh, that, that are looking Fabulous. It's, so it's great. Really and it, yeah. I don't know where we are. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I mean, I think it's just such a great story, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a real example of... I think innovation and open source and 
responsible software engineering um, in in action, and uh, it's a great story. And like you mentioned, Mill, you know, as we record this last week, the the the, the Mojaloot Foundation was um, was un- officially unveiled. So people should go and check it out. Um, how else would you recommend people, uh, you know, can le- learn more and 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 hopefully get involved? Yeah, the easiest way to do that would be to go to mojaloop.io which is the new landing page for the foundation, but there's a quick link there that'll take you to the GitHub. Uh, if you're already on GitHub and have a handle, you're welcome to just show up uh, and have a look around. I would say it's his usual practice. Uh, the, there's a, a project, uh, there's a repo in the GitHub called Mojaloop slash Mojaloop, which is the place where we put the project roadmap, the things we think are the big epics that need working on uh, and a set of issues that are being worked on by others. And then there's a whole set of a dozen or more repos around that with the different components of the system. The documentation is directly accessible off of Mojaloop.io also. And that documentation is uh, directly editable. So if somebody finds a typo in there, you're welcome to fix it. <laughs> Please. Uh, if you have questions, what will happen is if you click on edit, it will actually generate a pull request automatically to the team. Someone will read it. Review your See, everyone's got an opportunity to play a role. Everyone can do That's something, right? right? Exactly so, right. Uh, well, wonderful. Miller, thank you so much for coming on and telling the story and sharing uh, with everybody about Mojo Loop and uh, all the best for uh, for the future. Thank you, John, very much. And also for your participation in helping us get the foundation started. And uh, to anybody who wants to show up, we, we would welcome you. Thank you. Thank you.